are now to the number nine series of data updates in COVID-19. Yes, I'm certainly not physically. I'm Dr. Go from uh, National Institute of Health, the Director of Institute for Clinical Research, and we uh, have a break for Dr. Chris for the coming Hari Raya. So today, we are now looking more towards collateral damage from COVID-19. It is because we recognize as COVID-19 pandemic uh, progresses, people who are not affected by COVID-19, which are majority of them, are having uh, challenges in assessing to medical care, either because we are being locked down or because of the fear to go to the hospital. So today we have four people who care for people with chronic diseases, such as chronic liver diseases, people who are facing end-of-life issues because of the disease uh, such as cancer, uh, and providing care in the home for home hospice care, uh, as well as uh, family medical specialists, uh, family medicine specialists who care for children who need immunization, healthy children, and as well as healthy pregnant women who need to come for the antenatal check. So um, without further ado, I would like to welcome Dr. Rosita and, uh, uh, and as well as uh, Dr. Tan Sosem, Dr. Vanita and Nurse Sunita. These are four strong ladies and I'm a lady. So today is a lady team. Um, for those who are healthcare professionals who need CPD points, do not forget to click on the, atten the online attendantship and uh, so that you will get the uh, online certificate for your CPD uh, points. Do make sure you have a correct email. And for question and answer, we will, uh, after the fourth presentation, we have a Q&A. You can type your question on Slido, which will be shown on the slide, which is now shown on. So do get ready for your questions. The slides will be shown later after the webinar, and we do have a team of staff from ICR to prepare clinical summaries and all these video slides as well as the uh, clinical summaries will be up on all those channels that you are uh, you can have access to. So now let's start with Dr. Rosita Binti Zakaria, the head of um, family medicine specialist uh, who works in the clinic health clinic in Facility 18. Thank you for having me. Um, first of all, Assalamualaikum and a very good afternoon to everyone. Um, I will be talking on maternal and child health services um, during this uh, COVID-19 pandemic at uh, health clinics, how we embrace the new normal. So I shall um, share my slides. So uh, this is my topic. So... Um, when we talk about uh, vulnerability, um, we usually refer to a person uh, in need of special care, a special support or protection because of the age or the disability and so forth, and the risk as well. And uh, generally, pregnant mothers and children fall into this category as they are at higher risk of getting into a situation. And um, especially so, yeah, Datuk, uh, as we have lack of scientific knowledge on this group of people, as they are relatively less being um, included in researches. So generally, I think we can include them in uh, 
people uh, who fall into the vulnerable uh, group. A little bit on the background of the maternal and child health services in Malaysia. Um, it is the maternal and child health is an essential uh, component of the National Rural Health Development Program in the 1950s, but it has evolved uh, to become a very comprehensive service which is delivered in the health clinic on top of many other services that we deliver in our clinics. And typically, our health clinics, actually, we have um, categorized it into types 1 to 7. Um, there's a typo there, 1 to 7, actually. Um, and typically, the working hours is like um, we start 8 to 5. Uh, we start off 7.30 for registrations. And, but there are some clinics who have extended hours and work until 10 p.m. and half days on weekends. Um, so what happens during this uh, COVID-19 uh, outbreak? Um, I think I must show this picture here with our photo of our DG because um, uh, everybody will listen now when DG talks. So the whole country can listen when DG talks. So he mentions here, I quote, walaupun dalam keadaan situasi wabak COVID-19 ini, KKM ingin menekankan bahawa perkhidmatan kesihatan ibu hamil dan anak adalah berjalan seperti biasa. So um, we, our service must go on and we will have to perform all the services uh, including uh, home visit for the mother and child. All right. So uh, service must go on. Why? Because they are vulnerable and we have to continue to provide them with uh, safe uh, and effective care to, um, to all our mothers and children. Um, however, how do we run this service? Um, it should now be in a different manner. Uh, the basis of this is for the protection of our healthcare workers and also to break the chain of COVID-19 infection. So maintaining a healthy uh, workforce will actually ensure continuous uh, quality care. Uh, and at the same time, we cannot compromise the quality of care to our patients. Okay, the same principles that we advise to the public should also be adhered to uh, in our facilities. Here, the, the advice that we have been harping to them, to the public, is avoid the three C's and practice the three W's. So, uh, what are the three C's and what are the three W's? Uh, avoid crowded places, confined spaces, and close conversation. Um, and we have to um, uh, practice uh, washing our hands, uh, wearing masks, and also uh, warning about um, like cough etiquettes, uh, um, not to shake hands now, just to put our right hand on our left uh, chest to greet people. Okay, so. Um, so um, we at the facility uh, will also, at the clinics, will also have to adhere to these principles. Um, number one, uh, we have to minimize crowding in clinics, uh, minimize patients' contact, contact time in the clinic and confined spaces, minimize close conversation, face-to-face -face conversation, handling by healthcare worker, um, and wash, uh, we had to adhere to infection control, to PPE usage, and we have to um, 
still warn our staff about social distancing. Social distancing is not only uh, for people outside, but also within the clinic as well. And also, lastly, we also have to use digital technology. Um, to minimize uh, crowding and uh, reduce the possibility of cross-infection, um, an analysis of the number of staffs and patients uh, being in an area, in the same area, uh, uh, has to be done. So based on the analysis, a rearrangement of staff has to be done and necessary changes to the work process should be looked into. At the moment, although we have a staggered appointment system in place, uh, many patients do not uh, adhere to it for many reasons. So this is the time and opportunity for us to emphasize, to re-emphasize on the, inform, the importance of adhering to the given time and date of appointment. Um, early of this year, uh, online appointment system has been launched, not for all clinics. It was piloted in uh, Putrajaya, where my clinic is also involved, uh, where patients can actually choose when they prefer to come to the clinic the date and also the time. By having this, uh, I think there will be a control on the number of patients coming to our clinic as well as a control on the number of patients waiting uh, in our clinic area. So, um, so social distancing can be practiced uh, effectively within uh, our clinic. Um, and primary triaging at the point of entry is being carried out and navigation of patients will be done effectively. At the moment, uh, plan and discussion has been in place to lengthen the uh, operational hours of our clinics and to go on shift duties. So that's why I mentioned just now in the, in the first few slides that um, typically we work from 8 to 5 and um, some clinics have extended hours and work until 10 p.m. And, um, uh, and also half a day during the weekend. So now there, is, there are plans and um, discussion for lengthening of operational hours and uh, shift duties. So um, all in all, there will be a limit to the number of patients. It will be easier for a one-to-one -one consultation with no sharing of rooms, uh, hence a better uh, infection control process. Uh, the plan is for clinics to operate from 8 to 10 p.m. with uh, two shifts, but um, it, won't, uh, it will be closed on uh, weekends. Uh, this is an example of primary triaging um, where patients uh, come in and will be triaged uh, by our nurses and also our doctors and they will be navigated to where they are supposed to go to. And this is an example of the waiting area. Uh, we practice social distancing and um, to, reduce, to, to reduce the uh, possibility of uh, cross-infection. Okay, the next is reduce patients' contact time in the clinic and confined spaces. Mm, to reduce this contact time, some strategies have been uh, carried out. For example, for booking purposes, we actually do a pre-booking call, which is done via a phone call. Usually, pregnant mothers will come to the clinic and um, we... Uh, entertain them and we book them immediately and we do a detailed history taking uh, and also do assessment, uh, risk assessment. Um, 
the the uh, so now uh, so so now we will do this pre-booking through a phone call. So uh, the purpose uh, of this is to do this phone call and um, it will reduce the contact time uh, of the patient uh, in our clinic. Because usually a booking process will take about an hour or so or even more where a newly registered patient will come to the clinic for detailed history taking, uh, risk assessment, physical examination and lab test. So by doing history taking and opening up the um, antenatal book, it will reduce uh, contact time. And um, as I have mentioned before, one-to-one uh, -one consultation with no sharing of examination rooms will also reduce uh, uh, this um, uh, contact time and confined uh, space in the clinic. Other strategies uh, that we have, uh, uh, we are emphasizing now is that uh, to strengthen our value-added services uh, by the pharmacies where patients can get their medication through other means like a locker for you. They can uh, drive through and can get medication by post. Okay. And this is an example of our examination room. And minimizing um, close contact uh, by face-to-face -face, uh, conversation. Uh, usually for like what I've mentioned, booking and history taking uh, through the phone can uh, reduce the uh, reduce the um, time the uh, and contact of the patient face to face eh? so and we also now we are empowering the parent or the carer for our child health patients who comes for immunization we are um, empowering them to self perform procedures like measuring the height and length of or wait for the children uh, but of course our nurse should also be there to supervise and uh, and the nurses should plot it in the chart, not the parents. So um, all this have to be done without compromising the uh, quality of care. Um, and we also have online monitoring of antenatal and postnatal patients. We have checklists for patients that we need to uh, actually check on we are uh, to monitor them there is a checklist which has been developed and the nurses can go through this checklist to ask uh, certain questions through the phone and um, also um, virtual clinic um, this is another exciting um, uh, exciting thing that has uh, actually happened. Uh, our clinic in Putrajaya Precinct 18, we have started off a uh, virtual clinic as a proof of concept. It's a pilot project. We started off in uh, um, August uh, 2019. Um, and we started off with only just a few patients or NCD patients where patients do not need to come to the clinic physically but can be seen virtually. For example, if they are being started on ACE inhibitors and we have taken their renal profile and we ask them to come back in two weeks' time to review the blood results. So it can actually congest the clinic by having more patients. So this is what we have done uh, virtually. So um, And when COVID-19 happens, we took the opportunity to expand our virtual clinic to include other cases as well. And the uh, 
three W's, what are they? The adherence to infection control, where our uh, staff should uh, be uh, screened for symptoms and um, temperature before coming into the clinic every morning and to emphasize on regular hand washing, use of hand sanitizers, and cutting their fingernails and all that. All that has to be, uh, to be um, carried out. And um, PPE usage, uh, staff should use uh, appropriate PPE according to their work process. For example, for home visit, our nurses will still have to perform home visiting for patients uh, that, um, that requires. So uh, before going for the home visit, they will call the patients first to ask whether they are around in the house and to ask whether they are having any problems, any fever or have any contact with the COVID patient. They have a checklist on what to ask and uh, what to do. So, and when they go to the uh, homes, uh, they will wear the appropriate uh, PPE for examination of the child and the mother. And we have to warn our staff. Usually, our nurses will, and um, nurses especially, they will uh, shake hands with our uh, patients. Uh, uh, they, they are trained to salam, eh? salam, senyum. They have all that uh, S, uh, salam, senyum and all that. So now we tell them no more handshakes, but uh, you should still greet. Uh, the patients and talk to them nicely. Social distancing should be uh, practiced and uh, cough and sneezing ethics and regular disinfections of our uh, workstations. Okay? This is what they do regularly. And uh, lastly, by using digital technology, like I've mentioned just now, uh, virtual consultations uh, in clinics with existing facilities uh, and for suitable patients. Not all patients are suitable for virtual consultation and also the online appointment. So uh, when I look through I, um, what other countries are doing, uh, they have actually for their antenatal um, mothers, uh, it is recommended by WHO that they have this antenatal context eight times uh, throughout the pregnancy at 12 weeks, 20 weeks, 25 and so forth. Uh, however, uh, what they have uh, done is an alternate uh, modality of the antenatal contact where they have four face-to-face -face and four remote contact. With this remote contact, they should also have they also have a risk assessment tool where they um, have uh, to ask uh, the patients. So uh, this can also be incorporated into uh, our um, service. Uh, but of course, uh, we will not stop at what we have done. We will also still improve in whatever we have done now. Maybe we can also. Uh, adapt to whatever other countries are doing. So, um, in conclusion, the process of adaptation of the new norm will, of course, take some time. It creates confusion among staffs, among patients, and sometimes there are dissatisfaction. But um, finally, uh, we will have to accept the new norm. Okay. All right. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you, Rosita. Wonderful. Uh, give an overview of how the uh, clinic has been doing and will be doing at the new normals. Yeah.
Next, uh, we would like to invite Dr. Tan Soksel, a senior consultant hepatologist who care for many patients with hepatitis B and C, as well as those with liver failure. She's also a very keen researcher, and her interest of research, again, is on liver failure and uh, hepatitis. We would like uh, her to share with us some of the uh, analysis she has done on data we collected quick and hit patient who has also chronic liver disease. Thank you, Tan. Go ahead. Thank, thank you, Dr. Goh. Thank you for the kind introductions and the invitation. Okay, um, my topic for today is on um, liver injury in COVID-19. This is the disclaimer slide from the organizer. So I'd like to address what are the types of liver injuries in COVID-19, how common are they, and do they matter? And also, we'd like to discuss some of the possible mechanisms of liver injury, and whether people with pre-existing liver disease and develop COVID-19, is it important? Does it matter? And I'll move on to recommendations on management of liver injury in COVID-19 patients. And also, finally, I will end with caring for liver patients without COVID-19 during this pandemic, during uh, the, uh, in the new, new normal. Abnormal liver function tests have been reported from the beginning. It's usually transient in mild uh, COVID-19 and does not require specific treatment beyond supportive care. Patients with abnormal liver function can be as high as 53% and or as low as 16%. But patients with severe COVID have increased incidence of abnormal liver function. ACE2 is the functional receptors for the SARS-CoV virus, and it's present in many organs. It's present in the central nervous system, the airways, the upper airways, the vasculatures, the lungs, the liver, the gut, kidneys, heart, and our eyes. In the liver, it's present more in the cholangiocytes than the hepatocytes. In autopsy tissue samples, when we look at the viral load of the SARS-CoV, to quantify it, of course, it's very high in the lungs and the pharynx. It's also found in the liver, as well as the kidneys and the heart, a small number in the brain and the blood. Meta-analysis based on 12 studies showed show the full prevalence of liver injury in COVID-19 patients is about 19%. The prevalence of increased ASC is 21%. Prevalence of increased ALT is somewhat lower than ASD at 18%. Prevalence of increased total bilirubin was 6% and the prevalence of decreased albumin was 6%. And meta-analysis also show deranged liver biochemistry is associated with more severe COVID-19. So what is the significance of elevated uh, liver uh, biochemistry? Based on a study from China for more than 400 patients, abnormal liver function test at admission itself is associated with higher risk of severe COVID-19. Then another study from New York in more than 1,000 patients, multivariable analysis show liver injury at presentation at a with odd ratio of 2.53 and is independently associated with higher risk of a poor composite outcome of ICU admission or death. 
Other factors are, of course, what we know, older age, comorbidities and respiratory problems such as kidney and severe hypoxia. Severe liver failures and injuries with SARS-CoV-2 infection had also been reported. One case was in a 65-year-old male, throat swap positive. On admission, the ALT was only mildly elevated as mild hepatitis. He developed mild to moderate ARDS, requiring oxygen therapy, and he also requires some vasopressor. He was given antiviral, calitra and interferon beta. Uh, the echo was normal, the ultrasound was uh, also normal. Hepatitis increased to about 400, and subsequent to that, the INR also increased, the bilirubin also increased. Eventually, the, he had poor uh, liver prognostic score, MELT score, about 40, and he passed away. There was another case of a 59-year-old well-controlled patient with uh, retroviral disease. This, uh, uh, this patient has severe hepatitis. The ST was uh, about uh, more than 1,200. The ALT about 700. And he was, uh, she was negative for other hepatotropic virus, hepatitis A, B, C, E, C, M, and E, B, V, and also autoimmune liver markers. Luckily, this patient survived and he, the patient was discharged. I work in a non-COVID hospital. and I only have the opportunity to look at seven cases uh, with the help of, of my colleagues, Dr. Law Insu, Dr. William Yap, and Dr. Yasmin Dani. Of these seven cases are uh, uh, PCR-positive COVID-19, three of them had acute liver injury. Acute liver injury is defined as patient with jaundice, which is total bilirubin above 51 millimol per liter, uh, liver enzymes, ALT, ASC, alkaline phosphatase, or gamma GT above two times upper limit of normal, or INR equal above 1.5. So these three cases have acute liver injury. The first case is a, a, was a 36-year-old male diabetic who passed away. Second case was a, uh, is a 59-year-old male with diabetes and hypertension. At the time of data analysis, uh, he, he was uh, still tube in ICU. The third case, a 58-year-old male with similar uh, pre-morbid history, diabetes and hypertension, and still tube at the time of uh, data analysis. So I bring you through the liver function test. The ALT on admission on the two patients who are still alive are actually quite normal, but the patient who passed away actually was high on, on arrival. And the peak value of the patient who passed away was, uh, was about three times upper limit of normal. Um, and the others are about uh, three, three times or four times upper limit of normal. And we'll, if you look at the AST on, on uh, admission, the one who passed away also had a higher AST. And this AST can go up to about eight times upper limit of normal, so between four to eight times. So this is an AST predominant elevations in terms of the liver injury. In terms of alkaline phosphatase, they were quite normal on admission and they to about two times upper limit of normal at the peaks. And the bilirubin, the patient who passed away, peaked at 125, and the others also had enough uh, a rise in uh, bilirubin to con be considered as acute liver injury. And the INR can go to about 1.5. This slide shows a series of uh, moderate to severe COVID-19 from Wuhan. And you can see they have multiple complications. 
and uh, acute liver injury also occur in this patient, about 5% more in those who did not uh, uh, make, uh, uh, who pass away than, than those who are recovered. So what are the mechanisms of liver injuries? These are postulates based on autopsy tissues of the liver. And be shown maybe there is direct viral and cytopathic defects because we could see moderate uh, microvascular steatosis and also activities in the lobular area and the portal area of the liver tissue. Also, you can see acute portal and sinusoidal thrombosis and also endothelial thickening in the liver tissue. So possibly there is some intrahepatic vascular related damage as well. Of course, drug-induced liver injury can happen. This is also can be supported by the microvesicular steatosis on, on the autopsy liver tissue. But drug-induced liver injury is a diagnosis by exclusion. And in, in the uh, patients with COVID-19, common drug-induced injury that you need to consider are those from, from the antiviral remdesivir and also tocilizumab. And other drugs are like hydroxychloroquine, the Calectra, antibiotics, and antifungus also can cause drug-induced liver injury. The liver injuries can also be uh, uh, happening because of the cytokine storm, the balance in the immune system, and liver could be part of the uh, multi-organ dysfunctions. So this is part of the virus sepsis hypothesis. Another cause of liver injury could be the pneumonia-associated hypoxia and also ischemic hepatitis. What about those patients with pre-existing chronic liver disease and what happened to them when they developed COVID-19? Initial series here shows there is very small number of patients with chronic liver disease. But this series has a lot of missing data in terms of what are the underlying conditions. The subsequent study shows from UK from using electronic health data records on uh, over 17 million patients. Uh, they found that chronic liver disease is a risk factor for inpatient uh, death from COVID-19. Another series from America show that chronic liver disease is associated with significantly higher mortality. The mortality is even higher if the patient has liver cirrhosis. And the etiologies of this chronic liver disease and cirrhosis are fatty liver disease and also non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. This mortality risk is actually independent of the well-known factors of mortality, the high BMI, hypertension, and diabetes. So this brings me to this slide about uh, fatty liver disease. Fatty liver disease used to be called NAFLD and has been now changed to MAFLD, which stands for Metabolic Associated Fatty Liver Disease. So what happened to them if they developed COVID-19? Why do I want to discuss on this is because uh, MFLD is very prevalent in Malaysia. In the general population, it's about 38%. But if you're a diabetic patient, type 2 diabetes is close to 50%. The young adults are also not spared of having uh, metabolic-associated fatal liver disease. In these studies, using a non-invasive test of, of fatty liver disease, either by ultrasound or using some simple parameters to calculate the hepatic steatosis index, they found that patients with MAFLD had higher risk of COVID disease progression, higher likelihood of abnormal liver function from admission to discharge, and a longer viral shedding time. 
I think we do need to look out for patients with cirrhosis in uh, who develop COVID-19. This is a international registry of a cohort of patients with liver disease, 491 from about 20, from 28 countries. This, uh, in this cohort, 209 of them have cirrhosis. And you can see patients with cirrhosis, the death rate is about 36%, compared to those who without uh, cirrhosis at 7%, and even those who had liver transplant were fare better at 17%. And the etiologies of liver cirrhosis or alcohol in this cohort, and also this uh, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, the metabolic-associated liver disease, and also viral hepatitis. So what are the recommendations on the management of liver injury in COVID-19? When we look at the liver function, if it's elevated in patients with COVID-19, you should check for viral hepatitis B and C. Review the medication in case it is a drug-induced liver injury. If you consider this patient could have biliary obstruction or, or venous thrombosis, then an ultrasound is indicated. Otherwise, probably it's best not a not to have uh, exposed the patient to more injury. And if the liver function is stable and improving, you just continue to monitor. But should the liver function uh, worsen, you should think about whether this is uh, uh, ischemia, myositis, cytokine release syndrome, or it could be drug-induced liver injury. There's no specific therapy. If the patients are found to be have, have hepatitis B and you're considering whether that patient may have a hepatitis B flare, or you are considering whether to start immunosuppression as part of the treatment of COVID-19, the patient could be started on hepatitis B treatment. The presence of abnormal liver biochemistry should not contraindicate the use of uh, investigation or off-label therapies unless it is very, very high. The regular monitoring of liver functions in, uh, is actually recommended in all hospitalized COVID-19, especially those on uh, remdesivir and toxicity. So what about treating liver disease alongside COVID-19? I've shown to you uh, patients with cirrhosis a higher mortality. So we need to keep this vulnerable group safe. We need to educate our patients and caregivers and also healthcare workers. Uh, thank you, Dr. Rosita, for pointing out there's so many things that we can do. We can streamline appointments, we can use, uh, and also the procedures. We can use uh, tele-reviews or tele-clinics. Actually, endoscopy is an aerosol-generating procedure. So we use uh, endoscopy a lot for our uh, chronic liver disease patients, especially cirrhosis, to look for whether they have viruses, and then we start beta blocker. But now, we could possibly consider starting beta blocker in a selected group of patients who has uh, uh, studies shown at high risk of uh, viruses without even doing endoscopy. And liver transplant patient is actually life-saving emergency surgery for acute liver patients, uh, high, uh, patients with high mouth. We need this as an uh, emergency surgery for this group of patients. So in summary, SARS-CoV-2 has a broad organotropism, abnormal liver chemistry uh, prevalent and uh, possible multiple, uh, multiple factorial. And usually mild or transient, mild, uh, transient in mild COVID-19, but severe injuries had also been reported. Abnormal liver biochemistry or liver injury at presentations predicts severe COVID and high risk of poor outcome. Patients with pre-existing chronic liver disease, especially those with cirrhosis, high mortality of COVID-19. So we have to take cognizance of this in their management and adaptation of our care plan for these type of patients.
Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Tan, for your analysis of uh, uh, liver disease and COVID-19. I would like to encourage the people out there, the clinicians, who are caring for other patients with chronic diseases such as cancer, chronic kidney diseases, coronary artery disease, and pre-existing lung chronic obstructive airway disease, asthma, asthma, and diabetes, hypertension, and stroke, to have a kind of systematic analysis like what you have done so that we who are caring for non-COVID-19 should now start to have this care plan based on evidence so that these people will be properly uh, treated, especially if they also have COVID-19. So uh, thanks for this uh, wonderful uh, comprehensive uh, presentation. So next come the very important topic of end-of-life care. As you know, COVID-19 doesn't care whether you are rich or poor, uh, young or old, but and people who are vulnerable are those who are already sick with various uh, diseases which have no curative um, uh, management. So end-of-life patients are either being treated in special institutions like in hospice care facilities or at home. In Malaysia, most of the people with end-of-life conditions are being cared for by the family members and the community hospice services. We are very lucky to have a team of these wonderful angels who, even during pandemic and lockdown, continue to care for the hospice patients at home. We welcome Dr. Vanita Tangaranam and Nurse Sunita. They are from the Kasih Hospice Care Society with more than 10 years experience in providing end-of-life services to people at home. The Kasih Hospice Care Society is a not-for-profit NGOs and has been existing for a long time, for 20 over years, and they care for people around chaos landmark areas, which are actually hot red spots, uh, red zone. And some of the patients are uh, really uh, very initially that we may not uh, provide a uh, continue our home care, but this uh, wonderful team of two doctors and six nurses continue their care. So we would like to hear from Juanita and Sunita how they go about doing it. How do they feel going to a family home with uh, unknown environment and risk factors? And how do patients feel when you visit them? Thank you, Juanita and Sunita. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank, thank you very much, Dr. Go. I think so you've mentioned part of my first and second slide. Yes, we are an NGO. And we are charitable and sorry, just let me move my slide. Yeah, we mainly do home visits to patients with life-limiting illness, with stage 4 cancers and stage 3 failure who have seized dialysis. We cover an area of starting from Kutani Jaya all the way to Bukit Bruntong. So that's quite a wide coverage going through many roadblocks during this MCO. And each of these areas actually covered by one designated nurse. So Prior to our MCO, about two weeks prior to it, we actually started doing some changes to our normal routine. It was just minor changes. Um, sorry. Yeah, it was just minor changes, meaning is the team of two doctors and six nurses were divided into two. And we actually um, started having our daily debriefing separately while we were trying to have physical distancing between ourselves. So it went on well too. 
NCO was established on 18th of March. So um, based on discussion by the board of directors, we had to actually start working from home. So we still continue on with our daily debriefing via Hangouts, going through all the phone calls of patients that were made the prior day or any home visits which are done. And we also at the same time identified patients that may require home visits during this MCO. So this MCO, we, we actually limited our home visits to mainly patients who were dying, meaning is they weren't able to swallow anymore and required the insertion of subcutaneous port and subcutaneous medications to keep their pain and symptoms under control. We continued making weekly phone calls to each and every patient under our care. But for patients with uncontrolled pain and symptoms, we did daily phone calls and video calls and we were still seeing is whether they need a visit. One of our doctors actually uh, designed a video because of uh, most of our patients having a um, low immune system, they are high risk of getting a COVID infection. So we made a video informing the patients and family members that it is risky to go back to hospital. So to liaise with the hospice medical team, if there is a need to either top up medicines or if there are any uncontrolled symptoms, they will contact the medical team and we would see what can be done. If it can be controlled within uh, means within home visit, uh, home visit or home, we would do. If not, we would actually liaise with the doctors in the hospital and try and work something out for the patient. Yes, telemedicine is not an ideal way to provide hospice care. Hospice care is about going, visiting patients, being there for the patient. But yes, we have to move along and do changes. But whatever visits we did during the home visit, um, during this MCO, we did a health risk assessment as um, basically everyone was doing. We assessed the risk for COVID and if we actually needed to go in. We wore full PPEs. So, sorry, my slide keeps running, sorry. Yeah. We had actually very good assistance from palliative care unit, Hospice Lion. We are very thankful for that because there were cases where patients' uh, medications had finished, family members were fearful of going back to hospital, and um, they will ask us, yes, because of um, those transporters were delayed and on, any other medicines weren't coming into us, they were very good at topping up medicines. We managed to actually lie with them and family members just had to go and pick up medicines. And also when it came to ambition of patients in the hospital, we just discussed the case and they would let us know how to go about so that there is ease of admission for the patients within the hospital without bypassing the accident and emergency. Yes, everyone had a lot of challenges during this COVID. So, some of the challenges which we face are basically fear of family members allowing us into the house. Even though um, patients got symptoms, they rather we do teleconferencing and try and manage pain or they don't mind coming to our office and collecting, but they were 
scared that in case we actually bring in the transmission. Yes, everyone was doing teleconferencing, but uh, at the beginning of MCO, because of cable problems, we had a lot of uh, poor internet connections during teleconferencing. So uh, it became quite difficult trying to view patients and assess their condition. Some, um, as we know that a lot of family members couldn't travel, so we had some homes where it was just two elderly people there. Yes, they had a smartphone, but they were unfamiliar on how to use it. So when we needed a video, it was quite difficult till we could get someone in to help get the video done of how the patient was. Also, we had decreased number of medical equipments to be loaned out because when patients, late patients, family members returned the equipments, we got a transit period of about two weeks before we clean, we check the equipment before it's loaned out to the next patient. And also, this is the wrong time to die because we've had a couple of cases where patients died at home. So the normal procedure is if there's a death at home, the family members go to the police station and um, get the death certificate. But since the NCO, it's been quite difficult because uh, the police are not so convinced. Even though there is supporting documents stating a patient's condition, they are not convinced that the patient died of um, complications of a cancer or NCO failure, but they suspect COVID and the member needs to bring the body back to the hospital. So it became quite complicated. Yes, family members found it difficult to visit their loved ones. Uh, recently, I had a case where uh, a patient was actually dying and the only uh, family member which was there was the wife. Yes, he had two kids, but they were overseas. And uh, when I went and visited, and I managed to have a teleconferencing with both the kids. One was in Australia, one was in UK. Explained to them that things are deteriorating and they understand and they knew the challenges which they were facing in try, in coming or flying in because they had they were working and they knew this quarantine. So I sat with a wife who was the main caregiver and I explained to her, okay, in the home setting, these are signs normally we see when a patient is just got a few hours, a few minutes to live. The wife was wonderful. She was very alert and she noticed the signs. So when she noticed that patient was actually already gasping and she just immediately video conference the kids and as the patient was taking the last breath the wife was next to him and the kids were watching through video conferencing and it was so good because the wife said is you know even though my family can't be there with me you know just teleconferencing helped me through all this process so yeah. The other challenges is yes, we do have risk assessment, but some patients are not truthful. We had this case where um, we get most of the referrals from private hospitals and government hospitals. Yes, we got this referral from this government hospital stating on uh, patients got um, stage four cancer. So when we did a, a call and a patient was fine initially, but subsequently developed uh, shortness of breath. So when 
we decided that we wanted to visit. Um, the family said, no, he shifted house. So uh, we couldn't uh, visit him. Then subsequently, when we call, uh, followed up with a phone call, found out that he ended up in hospital. After two days, the sibling calls us up and said, you know, he actually died of COVID. So it becomes quite difficult for us. Is even though when we do health risk assessment, family will say everything is negative, but um, yeah, we do not know the true pictures. Burnout, yes. Being um, caregivers, everyone goes through burnout, continuously caring for a patient. So normally, when there's no MCO, it's easy. You've got someone coming in and helping out, but during MCO, no one could travel, so caregivers were burnout. And to call in private caregivers was very, very difficult. So uh, mentally stressed out, so they would call us and ask us what to do, how to go about. So all we could do was just talk them through and teach them on relaxation and how they could just get some amount of respite. Now, communicating end-of-life issues with a PPE, using a face shield, face mask, not very easy. I, and I had this beautiful 91-year-old lady, which I went in with PPE. Um, first thing is when I was examining her, this is uh, many, many months back, yeah. So um, I was actually talking to her and she turns around because I was just fully covered and she turns around and says, in Malay, you don't like me as a doctor? I said, no. And I'm trying to smile through the mask and try to tell her, no, I'm not angry. Why do you say that? No, I cannot see your face. So I kind of explained to her, you know, because of fear of transmitting things to you and fear of COVID, you know, I cannot remove this. But you see, being a 92 years old, and I don't think so she understood she kept on repeating and repeating it till I had no choice. I had to remove it. And the, 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 the smile she gave to me, which I removed the mask, she was so happy. So these kind of small things, this non-verbal communication, sometimes is quite um, important. But what I did subsequent visit is I still wore my mask. I went and saw her. But this time I thought is best way is to be more verbal. So when she says something, I try to laugh more so that she knows that, I mean, she can't see my smile, but she knows that, okay, nothing is actually uh, affecting her or affecting me. Now, the other issue is patients wanted to borrow beds from us. Yes, we loan equipment. Everything is free of charge, but they have to get their own transporters. During the initial MCO, no lorry drivers wanted to come. They want to travel because scared of getting summoned. So patient's family, patient, there was a patient who really, really, really needed a bed. He was sleeping on the floor on a very thin mattress. So um, one kind soul, we managed to get him to actually come and this is he and one of our staff getting in the bed and patient was so happy with this bed and he died peacefully. Yeah, this is us teleconferencing and getting ready to go out. Now, the new norm, what are we going to do? How are we going to move on? Basically, we're going to continue on with whatever we've been doing during the MCO, but we're going to add on. See, right now we're just seeing dying patients, but we are going to start seeing more of patients with uncontrolled pain and symptoms, 
and patients who have been newly referred to us. But yes, we still need to do the heart risk assessment. And we would see if there is no risk, we'll go in. If we think there's some amount of risk, we would reassess and see um, the urgency. If we have to go in, yes, full PPE, we will definitely go in. And stable patients, we are still going to continue with teleconferencing. That is not going to change. Uh, and yes, safety precautions, like what Dr. Rosita has been saying. Yeah, we're going to continue with the whole thing of hand wash, full PPEs. We also intend to start doing pre-educated uh, education videos like teaching of basic nursing cares and doing subcut injections so that family members have something to fall back on to help them through these difficult times. We are trying to get this EMS electronic medical system, which I think so is going to be very beneficial because right now everything is on, on pen and paper. So it's because all the nurses are working from home with the electronic medical system to access these patients' uh, medical records, it will be much easier. Yeah, that's it. Thank you very much. Dr. Go? Yes, you can begin now. Your daughter is helping you. That's how wonderful working from home. Oh, can you hear me, Dr. Go? Very clear. Very clear. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah, I, I didn't know whether uh, you all could hear me. Yes, so thank you and good afternoon for allowing me to share my humble experience as a hospice nurse. So um, first thing, the issue was, you know, initially when the MCO started and also during the pandemic, we did have a sort shortage of uh, PPEs and so, but with the good spirit of the people and also volunteers. Using the PPE during home visits, it can be challenging as well because, uh, you know, with our hot and humid weather, uh, it, you can literally feel the sweat as you walk up to your patient's home. And some of the patient's home, you know, you have to walk uh, five flights up. Uh, and also um, there is a distance, you know, you have to park your car outside the uh, security premises before you, you, you go into the patient's home. And so, and we use a lot of sanitizers and also disinfectant after our visits. And uh, some of the challenges we face is roadblocks. And uh, I was especially worried about whether the, the authorities, the police, uh, would recognize our service, you know. And uh, one of our colleagues did get stopped by the authorities, you know, because they were not aware of what hospice services is all about. And then uh, with the letter of authorization, um, with the curfew, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. during the MCO, there was one family uh, and the uh, mother was during her last uh, final hours. And uh, it was midnight. And one of the um, concern was, can they go to the um, patient's home, to their mother's house. And so what we did was, we, I actually did call the police station, you know, asking if it's possible enough for a, a family to travel and see their loved ones. And they were very kind enough. And uh, I had to write a letter, um, official letter, and then uh, they had to go to the nearby police station to get it uh, approved. And so then they were allowed to, to go and see uh, their mother. And uh, no interstate travel was another challenge as well because uh, we had a patient, uh, Mr. C, who was diagnosed with kidney failure and had only one wish, uh, to return back to his original home in Kuala Kangsa, Pera. And, uh, you know, this MCO has made it uh, his journey 
uh, uh, somewhat complex. And together with his family, we decided to write a letter and appeal to the authorities and uh, prepare patients with subcut injections and continue even to provide um, service to them. Though in you know, Kuala Kansa, there is a remote area, so there's no other hospice to cover. And so we did that. And within uh, 36 hours, um, he passed away uh, peacefully, surrounded by his loved ones. So uh, I must say that, uh, you, you know, we, we do try uh, to make the impossible possible. And, and, and the family was very grateful. Okay, so there was uh, definitely fear uh, during this pandemic. And of course, my family was very worried um, of should I continue to work? And uh, my, my daughter would even ask me, you know, a question. Every time I go out to see patients, do I really have to go out? Can't I just stay home for today? And it's actually heartbreaking. And uh, what I did was I would call them five minutes before I reach home. And so they would prepare everything, the towel, the soaps, all, all outside the house. And uh, I, uh, they would actually, you know, uh, I would actually bathe outside. Um, I have also even considered um, renting uh, a place outside, a room, in fact, you know, uh, fearing that I may spread the virus to my loved ones. And, um, you know, at times I would get up in the morning and, and I will do self-check, self you know, to see whether I have the virus or not, um, temperature checking especially. And, uh, but on the positive aspect of this fear is um, it, it makes me more diligent and more careful. It, it reminds me uh, to use uh, the hand sanitizers, to use gloves, uh, double gloves. Um, in fact, it, it, um, uh, wash hands, you know, frequently. So for our medical team, uh, I would say that it's, it's a nightmare as prime liners. We are afraid. Uh, we are also painfully aware that um, many healthcare workers have lost their lives. And, you know, we try to avoid contact with our family members until uh, uh, we go home and, and we, we shower first before we even, you know, talk to them or even hug them. Patients and family members, uh, Dr. Vanita has mentioned earlier that, you know, some of them do prefer to do video conferencing and calling them instead of um, you know physically visiting them and uh, you know the, the reason is because they said you know the family members or their loved ones are already immunocompromised and uh, so they don't want uh, you know to increase the risk as well so uh, how we, we still stay connected to our medical team i call it the cyberspace we do have debriefing with our team ongoingly and you can see there i missed that so you know we we frequently celebrate our colleagues' birthday and all, and, and we can't now. So we still keep in touch. We do have games and lectures online. And um, last week, that was my first time playing uh, charades on, online. So that was quite fun too. Um, the pros and cons working from home, of course, flexibility of hours, no traffic jam, save time on driving, cost effective for the organization, I would say. But also this work demands more. Uh, it's, it seems like it's, we are working now seven days a week uh, and there's no physical separation between work and leisure time. And uh, it can be emotionally exhausting as well. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sunita. And 
the ends our four uh, speakers sharing on caring for vulnerable population. Don't worry, we know you'll be your loved one, Sunita. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, we, we now move to question and answers. Um, uh, we have uh, Dr. Only care doctor talking about ventilators, uh, how they continue to care for people who really need to visit um, their, their clinics for ventilator checkup and the children for vaccination. And we have people with chronic liver disease, uh, high risk of getting COVID and certainly high risk for, for mortality. Then we have this wonderful home care uh, hospice uh, sharing how they continue to serve people at home through this difficult time. So we welcome questions please type into Slido. So first is the question to Vanita and your team. They thank you for, for helping the needy one during this period of time. And uh, so certainly our community are so, so appreciating of uh, the work you uh, frontliners, uh, real frontliners are doing. So now first question, Rosita. Do you think there's a need for us to assess the acceptance of our patient towards uh, new normals in healthcare system? Basically, I think uh, the way we are going to adjust and modify the way we care for patients. Your answer, please. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for the question. Um, of course, we will need the uh, feedback from our um, community. So we actually have um, done a Google form questionnaire and we have, uh, we have submitted it um, through WhatsApp to uh, the community, the people in Putrajaya. At the moment, we started off with KL and Putrajaya. So, um, and uh, we have yet to analyze uh, what they have, um, their, their feedback are. But we do, yes, we do have that. Uh, so I suppose the, your answer, uh, said, uh, you, can, you have already answered how uh, you prepare for the virtual clinic and things. Uh, what are the, second question is uh, how are patients preparing with virtual consultations? Are there any preparation needed, for example, training for both staff and patients? Mm, okay, so for this uh, virtual clinic, uh, we have, uh, what, like I've mentioned just now, we have started in August 2019 and uh, throughout those months, we have uh, got continuous feedback. We also submitted Google Forms for these uh, patients and the feedback was um, was very good. Uh, they uh, they uh, like that virtual consultations, uh, that virtual clinic because basically uh, number one is they will not have to come to the clinic. Number two, they will not have problems getting a parking space. Um, number three, some of our patients, one of my patients actually was uh, um, doing uh, her uh, lactation. She, she was actually uh, pumping her uh, breast milk during that consultation, but we cannot see because we can only see her face, of course. So um, some was in the car, some was in the pantry at workplace. So uh, they claim that they they prefer this type of uh, consultations uh, so that uh, it will save time as well. Um, but of course, we will be very selective. Not all patients can be uh, under our virtual clinic sessions. And for the training part, um, uh, yes, uh, initially uh, we we um, 
while when we recruited our patients, uh, let's say, like I mentioned just now, patient who has taken a blood test for uh, starting on ACE inhibitors, took blood test and supposed to come in two weeks' time. So uh, before coming in two weeks' time, we have already selected, oh, this is the patient suitable for our virtual clinic. So we have already primed the patient, got their consent and teach them um, how to do it. So they have to download uh, Skype for Business uh, and uh, on their laptop and most majority of our patients use their mobile network rather than using a laptop uh, at home. So majority of them using uh, mobile network. And of course, um, the younger group of people, uh, they are more IT savvy, so uh, no problems with them. But the more uh, elderly patients, we will need to uh, train their, um, their uh, children. So during this uh, MCO, uh, training was done through the phone. We will uh, call the patient and tell them, okay, what? Uh, we will tell them the guides to step to step uh, what to do step by step yes uh, thank you very much next question also is for you how about vaccination you know we have a national immunization program where children have yes. in both in the clinic and the school how do you go about it Okay, so uh, right now for the uh, vaccination we have um, we are planning for a session where the patients will uh, come to the clinic with their parents and we will give them appointments and they will get the vaccination uh, in the clinic. So that is uh, in the pipeline. We are starting it um, uh, June, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much, Rosita. So I think more, uh, I think this uh, something new, uh, the uh, preparation will be done for all uh, necessary service. So we now turn to Juanita. Did the frequency of phone visit or phone call reduce during this pandemic? And how far does this pandemic affect the hospice care? I think access to painkiller, etc. Yes, the number of home frequency of home visits, yes, it did decrease by a lot. But it actually um, our phone calls actually increased. We were doing daily phone calls. So in a day, um, normally our home visits are like probably uh, three to four patients in a day. But when it came to phone calls, we were able to call in more patients. Sometimes uh, it goes up to 10 patients in a day. So about the care of the patients um, during this time. Um, right now, from what I can perceive and the feedback which we get from family members, I do not think that it has affected the care because if a patient is dying and um, these video calls have been fantastic, being able to um, see the patient, assess them and if there is a need and if we as hospice uh, medical team can make a difference to keep patient comfortable at home, we would go in to provide care. If we find that you no, know, the patient, there is risk or patients just want to go back to hospital for final hours, they want to die in the hospital, we would make the necessary arrangements. We'll contact the hospitals and see how best for the patient to come in with ease. Thank you. Yeah, follow up question is, do you think the quality of death is affected during this pandemic? Since the provision of palliative care is challenging. The quality of death so far, um, 
I don't, I, I don't think so because um, if patient is dying, yes, we make sure that there is uh, no pain and no symptoms. So, uh, but um, even that, even that, even if there is a pandemic, we would still go in if there is a need. So to ensure that patient has a good death. I think we need to tell the families that they can actually ask for permission from the authorities like police to allow them to travel interstate or go to visit the loved ones. I think many are so scared, they don't even ask permission. So I think your, through your home care, through your contact with the family, uh, do, do tell them that we can help them to get necessary permission to travel uh, during the MCO. If when patients are discharged and returned home, uh, what we would do is we would have a set of questionnaires for the pa patient or the caregivers, and we will ask them if they, uh, you know, this COVID-19 screening questionnaires such as any recent fever, cough, flu, or even diarrhea, any recent mass gathering, or any exposure to COVID-19 patients, and any of the family members or the relatives have returned uh, recently from uh, overseas. So these are the, the questions that we uh, ask to all the, the patients or the family members before we do go in. And, um, but uh, not the COVID test itself. Yeah, thank you. I, I would think um, for this person who asked the question, all COVID-19 patients are being admitted to government hospitals. Uh, so we have our guidelines to, to test before before discharge. If any patient with acute respiratory illness like influenza, like illness, uh, they are all or severe acute respiratory disease, they are all got tested. Normal cancer patients, if they do not have symptoms or no high risk, uh, they are not tested. So that's why it makes our home care team, like both Rosita's home care nurses to postnatal uh, visit at home and our uh, hospice service, it depends on this checklist. And that requires family members to be very sincere and truthful in answering those checklists. So but, uh, that's why I see both of the teams wear full PPE when they visit patients. But as Bonita said, some patients want to see your smiling face and things like that. So it makes, uh, it's certainly challenging in the, trying to do the best. And when I, have, uh, so let, I have a question to Dr. Tan. Um, you have done such a wonderful job to analyze and, and, and check on the public, publication on people with chronic disease and uh, having chronic liver disease and COVID-19. What is your advice to other specialists who care for patients who uh, may have uh, may become something like chronic liver disease, like those who care for stroke patients, people with chronic heart disease and kidney? Uh, what do you is your advice to them to come up with something like what you have done? So I think um, you know COVID nineteen is a new disease, and certainly there's a lot to learn. And uh, Malaysia being a, a country with multi-ethnicity and uh, of course, we also have uh, you know, diseases, NCDs and also infective diseases. So I, I think this is a, a, a time that we need to look at our patients with COVID-19 
uh, in uh, different different uh, you know uh, categories, different specialties, subspecialties, to to you know to learn and identify new things, and also how to improve our care for for these patients. I, I'm sure every uh, other different patients needs uh, special care, special uh, information, prognostic information, and also we can. By knowing that, we can actually improve our care for this uh, group of patients. Thank you very much. I uh, hope uh, yeah, NIH is engaging others disciplines as well to do research and also with my family health. I saw one uh, person asking uh, about the research activities. Yes, we do have uh, many uh, projects ongoing, uh, but we need uh, to gather all. COVID-19 patients in government hospital and analyze their, their, their disease progression and, and outcome. So thank you so much, everyone. Before we end, we would like to ask each and every one of you to give a little summaries of your presentation and the message you want to send to many thousands of people now listening to our webinar. Dr. Rosita, we start first. Okay, thank you, Dr. Go. Um, well, in uh, summary, um, we are still um, seeing our maternal and child health patients. We are doing it um, as usual but in a different manner uh, and um, we are embracing the new norm uh, and all the three C's and the three W's, please remember it is not only to be practiced uh, outside of our health facilities, it should also be uh, practiced within the facility. Thank you. Community as well, especially the coming Hari Raya celebrations. Don't forget yes. our message and our DD's message. Um, next, Dr. Tan, Sosyal. Yeah, um, I, I think from in terms of liver disease, uh, it is a double-edged thing. Um, COVID-19 uh, patients can develop um, uh, deranged liver function, bio, uh, liver biochemistry. And also patients with pre-existing chronic liver disease also fare worse when they have COVID-19. So we have to uh, uh, be cognizant of this and look after our patients well. And of course, Salamat Hari Raya. Thank you. Dr. Wanita? Yeah, I'm just going to make it simple. Hospice still persists during pandemic. Whatever challenges we face, we will still perceive on. Thank you. Thank you, Sunita. Well, despite the challenges we face, as what Dr. Vanita said, we at Kasi Hospice is very strong and, and we will we'll do our best to try to provide um, hospice services throughout the areas of coverage. Thank you. Thank you very much, everyone. Ladies, uh, such wonderful presentation. is very touching uh, how you uh, go on out to care for patients. We would like to inform everyone that uh, the coming uh, few webinar will be more on the collateral damage. So next week, we have a team of psychologists and psychiatrists, as well as a resident of the Befriender, who talk about how are we affected by COVID-19. Knowing that we have um, a panel who are experienced in treating many. So the early clinical presentation of COVID-19 is quite similar. Fever, myalgia. So we have an expert coming to talk about how we learn the lesson for dengue infection by having a checklist for warning signs. So uh, researchers in NIH as well as clinicians are now looking at the presentation of COVID-19 and soon hopefully we will publish the uh, warning signs so that people out there in GP and primary care will know how to differentiate between both 
uh, when it's pandemic, there was endemic. I think eventually COVID-19 will be endemic in the world as well to differentiate the both because the treatment and the, and the diagnostic testing are all different. So stay tuned, stay safe, and uh, keep uh, keep our webinar going with um, these wonderful topics. And um, last but not least, thank you all the panelists and Selamat Hari Raya.